0: Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Hello and
1: welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Michael Palin describes Trevor Dolby's book One Place L'Église as a timeless story of what it is that makes France irresistible. Former publisher Trevor and his wife Kaz discovered the medieval ruin just off the local village square and the resulting book, widely known as The New Year in Provence, follows them as they navigate language difficulties, floods and freezing winters, colourful characters in the local bar, all with the backdrop of the scent of thyme and lavender, the warmth of sun on stone walls, night. Hung with stars and how they come to create their perfectly imperfect French home. Trevor Dolby is on the Big Travel Podcast.
0: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach, you visit a private island and race down the tallest waterslide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle.
1: beautiful sounding house i've had a look through the book and the house in the medieval square the medieval house in the medieval square
2: well it was uh it's part of a circulard which is a defensive structure around um a, sometimes a village often a church and our house is part of that wall and it's built on the inside of it and it was built uh contiguous with the church um which was around um 10 50 started and our house was uh, originally part of the stabling on one side and then the other side of the of the gate was where the guards inhabited. And pretty much everything down in the south of France in Languedoc particularly which ran right the way across from Spain um, almost to the Italian border in those times um was fortified and the reason for that was the albigensians there was this um the albigensian crusade which was an extraordinarily bloody religious battle which went on for 40 or 50 years and went from one side of the longer dock to the other and kept ebbing and flowing, culminating or certainly punctuated very notoriously with a massacre in Bézier Cathedral where upwards of 10,000 people were massacred by Simon de Montfort. And it's, it's utterly notorious because um, they uh, went into the cathedral grounds from all around the countryside and they were besieged and he... Eventually broke the siege and murdered everybody. So every city, every small town, every village in that area is fortified, and that's um When uh, and over the years, it's it's been a school, it's been a marie, it's been a home. Um, but over the last twenty years or so, um, it was abandoned, and it's a very strange thing. It's not. This is not the case now, but certainly 20 years ago, when we were buying the house, um, if you went through a, a village in the south of France, and you, you would kind of find old houses which were almost tumbling down. And uh, it was a strange thing, partly because people were moving out into the lotissements, which are the little surrounding villages. Sorry, surrounding housing estates, where the houses were new and you could heat them but also because of the strange inheritance system in France, where in the UK, you know, the inheritance is usually to one or two people. In France, it goes to everybody. And as a consequence, a lot of them were either in fights with people who couldn't decide whether they should sell it or not, or it was because um, the tax system in those days, if you inherited something, You had to pay 40% tax on it or thereabouts. And then over a period of time, it would reduce to nothing. So what used to happen? Somebody would die, the house would become empty, they'd lock it and walk away from it because they'd want to pay the tax. That was very similar to what happened with our house. And when we first saw it, we... Uh, We were taken in, or I was taken in, and that's another story. I saw the house myself and didn't take my wife, who, who, when we bought it, had never seen it. Don't do this, everybody. This is not good advice. I've
1: actually done it, but yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: She loves it, I have to say. Um, And when I walked into it, it it had literally been locked for nearly 20 years, and everything in there was as if... Mm somebody had just walked out the door with a a, a a layer of of dust and grit on it and windows broken because of I think over the years you know um the floors crumbling uh, the old lady who had lived in there her bed was still there still made up and photographs of her and her family on the walls and you know um it, it was an extraordinary thing i and i when when I walked in, I was just captivated. The immobilier, the estate agent, took one look at it and tried to grab my arm and drag me out and say, "You don't want to do this. this has got nightmare written all over it and i said no no this is this is, this is amazing. I have to see more and I remember going into the old lady's dressing room and her clothes on um on rails, and I just brushed past one and it just powdered to dust. it was so 20 years of of dry atmosphere had just turned this thing you could almost blow on them and they would go. And um, I made my way up the steps, up the stairs, and we have the cliché of the the fertiliser bag in the window, but it was, Uh, up into the loft, up into the granier, which was about a foot thick in beautiful, rich-smelling hay, which had been maturing for 20 years. And it's funny, after 20 years, hay becomes sweet the smell of it just becomes this this lovely earthy smell and there was a, uh, a pigeoner, which had col- pretty much collapsed because the the acid guano had taken out all the uh, the wood and you could grab handfuls of it it was so rotten and um i just fell in love with it and went back home told karen about it my wife kaz and she basically said to me look you know, you've seen it. You know what we like. It's your decision. And I, I am Denard. And, and um, on the following Monday, having had lunch with a great friend of mine, who I've never met anybody who likes a deal more than him. And he, we had lunch, and he asked me all these questions. Um, will it lose money if you buy it? And I said yes, probably lots. Um, but he cum- culminated in it in. Do you love it? So all he said, do you love it? And I said, yes. And then he said, then go and buy it, and I will buy lunch. And you, and because I have persuaded to do so, I will get my week in, in your new house as my payment every year. And I bought it. And dear Ed Victor, who died some little time ago, who was a great um, literary agent and an extraordinary man, never kept me to the deal, apart from pretty much every year, he, he would phone me up and say, I, I'm not taking my week this year. A bottle of wine to my house would be rather lovely. Thank you so much. So um, that was how we came to, to buy it. Um, there's a backstory to it. Um, we, um, we actually saw another house before that, which we bought. But the people who we were buying it off were a, a, a father and a daughter. And we made the offer to the daughter and was accepted and somebody else about two hours before us had made an offer to the father who had accepted it two hours earlier. And of course this is, this is practically illegal, but they found out, they phoned us and said, look, I'm really sorry we've had this mix-up. And we were fine about it, what can you do? And as a consequence, the, the immobilier chap called Freddie Ruder, who we still know now, um, he, he, he kind of put us at the front of the queue so when new houses were coming on, on, on the market, he would phone us up and say, look, you've been really good about my mix-up. This goes on the market in a week's time. Um, have a look at it. If you're interested, you need to come and look at it in a week. But you need to pay the price for it. And I have this, feel, I have this sort of image of this black market of houses going you know um what do they call it L'air nez, where they tap their nose you know behind the counter at Royston Vasey that sort of thing but we were lucky to get behind the counter and we were lucky to get the book the the house and um it's been an adventure ever since
1: you've explained something to me something to me there that I've always wondered why the French neglect their beautiful country homes and even chateaus at some point i didn't know that about the inheritance but it seems a little bit unfair doesn't it to me to me that you know we're always going over there and and buying these beautiful houses from them they just don't seem to hold them in the same regard as we do
2: well that's very interesting and you know of course that's a a a great observation that we all make um and it's not at all that they don't like these old houses, and most of them have been in families for generations. I mean, our house, the petis who owned our house, that they'd owned it for 150 years. But these places need an awful lot of upkeep. They are ferociously cold. I mean, these these are houses that have four foot thick. Um, uh, stone walls and in summer fantastic you know you close the shutters in the morning so you know, and so on in winter and i write about a winter uh, uh, christmas we spent in coast and the uh, what was it the um uh, hartley's or h e bates's quote about um the past being another country the past is a very cold other country i'm here to tell you and of course, you know, to try and upkeep these places is very hard and it's very expensive. Um, and so, what people would do would they would create these lotissimal around the small villages, where, which were housing estates, where, where they would build small bungalows, which were easy to heat. They could put a swimming pool in the grounds. You could get to them easily. They were easy to upkeep, as it say. They were new and so on. And as a consequence, those old houses would get sold off. To people, incomers like us, or second homeowners. And of course, there's some frisson there, there's no question about it. But as, as again, a part of the book I write about the mayor, who there is a magazine in Coast called the, uh, La Garrigue and the Garrigue is an is a, a oak scrubland that covers the ground and it's, it's very uh, uh, indicative of the Arab and the, the local magazine is called La Garrigue and in it there was an editorial once about 10 or 15 years ago um, by, the mare, by, by the mayor where he addressed this and said there's been some rumblings around the village about um, incomers coming and buying our old houses and, and he took them to task I mean they're pretty finger waggy these mayors in, mm-hmm. in, in France and said, um, just you remember, you know, you're sitting in your warm house. These people are coming in, doing these places up with local labour, by and large. And that's another thing I talk about is um, how to get your builder. And it's an art. Don't get a builder from more than 25 kilometres radius, otherwise you're finished. Um, and they're putting money into the the economy. Um, so, you know, just beckon up guys they're doing good things for us and I think that that's the general consensus um, and of course there's an income like, you, like anywhere you, you, if you move to a small village or, or, or to anywhere in, in any part of the world you know it's up to you to know that you are the arrivists, and that you have to make yourself part of the community they don't have to make you if they don't want to so you have to follow certain um conventions you know how to approach at the bar don't go buying drinks for everybody you know understand that dogs in rural france are, are not pets they're employees you know and um and um, I'm not immediately walking to somebody in the street um shouting bonjour shaking their hands and asking where the great best restaurant is you don't do that you have to wait to be asked um say bonjour of course um, be polite um, but you have to to wait for them to come towards you and Once you do all that and the myth, there is a myth about taking a bottle of, of scotch to the to the mayor you don 't do that, <laughs> um, but you have to sort of follow the the, the instincts and make sure that you 're not too pushy and then that 's fine. Everybody will take you to their hearts and make an effort with with language. My goodness, my French is awful it's terrible but make an effort they don't mind at all and what's more they love correcting you
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, describe to me some of the characters you've met there
2: oh goodness well I start the book with a fight in the square which is at the um, uh, at the coast fate every small village has a fete in the summer which is for the village and it's a bonding experience and every village has its fete, and everybody has and and you're really not expected to turn up from another village and sit down, because it's usually a big trestle-table um, uh, meal with wine and uh, a bit of a sing-song or chanteur in, on a stage. And you're not really expected to turn up from uh, other villages, sit down and go to somebody else's, some other town's village's fed. Anyway, one guy turned up, this was some years ago, and um, it didn't go down too well. But I was standing next to uh, the owner of the bar at the time called Dido, And Dido was this extraordinary flamboyant character who believed that um, her fate was not to be a bar owner in a small inch in south of France. Uh, The world had mistook her, and she should have been a painter in Pigalle, and she should have been an actress at the Moulin Rouge, and the world had conspired against her, and she would grab anybody she just didn't tell them how how life has not been and she should be and why and she would storm off and then we had um we, had, we all
1: feel like that well i was going to say
2: I, I sometimes i think oh i wonder whether she made because she left the village not long later i wonder whether she made it. i so hope that she made it because she was she was so eaten up that it had the world had not treated her to this ambition and then we had a we had a had a wonderful um old lady called Mary Claire who I I remember so fondly to this day and she was in her 80s and she'd lost her husband and she would just wander the village and find places to sit and people would talk to her and and um she would um wander into people's houses and take stuff.
1: <laughs> we all feel like that sometimes and, too I think. Well, but we're talking
2: stuff from the fridge you know um she would go into your larder and find a a sort of gallon of really good olive oil and hoik it back to her place she would um you know she would would find pots and pans that would fit perfectly into her kitchen and she'd take them back to her house and the villagers knew knew this and periodically when she was out they'd just go in and liberate their goods and take them back home and Mary Claire would start all over again and this was fine um so the place well is is, is it, it, characters is one thing but they're just i used to think that you know these are the sorts of people who you would find in almost any english village or village anywhere it's just that where we are it's i i always look at it, at it being maybe 50 60 70 years behind us and there's good things to that, and there's bad things to that, but the good thing about it is is that that people are still given time to be who they want to be um and there is there is still judgment of course, small villages like small villages over the uh, the world over you know there are there are there are petty fights and things, but people are given room to be who they want to be, and we had an and bar owners being probably <laughs> the the key ones we had um uh, renee and patricia who came after um dido and uh, renee is this this sort of Jean paul belmondo character and patricia was um quite the opposite sort of catherine of padua this extraordinary volatile character and whereas whereas um uh, René was this quiet, sort of quiet, serene and he used to be, he used to I remember he used to walk up, he's gone now um, he'd walk past in the mornings and he'd, he'd just gently nod to you and he'd smoke these gulwars black and the smell and then he and he'd drink this black coffee which was like tar and he'd just sort of nod his head and slightly lower his eyelids as he went past in the sure knowledge that the day would be fine, it would be fine and then patricia would come out renee there's nothing in the kitchen this the beer's gone the, the wine is all off and renee would look at her and go where 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 yeah. and then he'd finish his coffee as she carried on he'd take another drag of his cigarette and he he'd get up heavily and go and sort out whatever it is that patricia wanted doing and she could sing like Goodness, she could sing. She was a proper chanteuse, but she'd only sing late at night when she was
0: completely
1: drunk. This is idyllic. This, these are bar owners, village oh, bar yes. owners, straight out of Central Casting, completely. aren't they? They're exactly what you would have ordered. And,
2: absolutely, and and you know she she would get up in, at, at midnight and sing um, Edith Piaf better than Edith Piaf, usually aimed at Renee who she remembered when she married him as being this, this this there was never a more beautiful man she used to say and of course now he was he, he'd gone to seed and he'd, he was in his 70s for God's sake and she would sing at him and lament the fact and say that he didn't care about her and her arms would fly and she would come she'd stop singing and she'd throw herself on our shoulder and lament this man who had once been uh, this beautiful and, and vivacious and then suddenly she'd sober up and she'd charge across and throw her arms round him and go mon (laughs) amour and I'm not making this up (laughs) she was they were wonderful they still live around the area and then my favourite or bar owners I'm going to do a book on bar owners oh
1: absolutely please
2: there is um, a, a, a restaurant in the mountains called Le Lizard Bleu and it's one of those restaurants that is a sort of anachronism, there's more pizza places in front of us now, I think there are in Italy, and it's in a tiny little village on the side of a, of a, of a, a, a mountain where the village is, looks as if it's been sort of placed, it looks like scree from a distance, and at the bottom of it is Lisable. Um And it's run by a... Uh, a, a I think he's... He's, he, he's Dutch, that's right, Dutch called Rick Cat and Rick the, so the story goes and I tell the story in the book about um, how he came to be running one of the best restaurants rural restaurants that I've ever been in it's straight out of Peter Mayle it's straight out of Narrow Dog it's to Carcassonne it's just lovely and the story goes, and I've never asked him to verify it because the story's too good not to be true. And I don't want him to say, oh, no, no that's all rubbish. The story goes that in the early 80s, he was coming, came down from, um, from Holland to uh, meet f- some friends at Rockebrunn. And Rockebrunn, with an E, is near Montan, which is on the border of Italy. Rockebrunn in uh, the Languedoc is Noé and is about three miles from Vuzan and about three miles from us and the story goes that he got the rockabron wrong hmm. so he ended up in, in Longadoc his mates ended up in near Monta and it was it's about 300 miles <laughs> so he decided I can't be bothered to, to uh, make the trek he, marri- he, he met his now wife uh, Manu married took on blue and the rest is history and it's just the most wonderful place of an evening watching the, the the wind go through the the trees and the stars come down and driving back and pitch black where you would find you know wild boar kind of staggering across the road in your headlights um and the and the and the wonderful warmth coming up from the garrigue is just the most romantic place you could possibly imagine
1: what is your daily life like there Well, it depends. This is funny. Of course, it depends
2: upon the season. I mean, in summer, when it gets really hot, um, you know, 30, 30, I think last week it was 38, 39 degrees, which is hot. Um, The house is certainly our house with the big thick walls is is built so that you, you know, you open the shutters during the night, show that shut them during the day so that the sun gets in and it keeps pretty good temperature. But if it gets really hot, then the whole day shifts so everybody is up at five o'clock in the morning doing what they would have done at eight or nine o'clock in the morning you know there's the cars are out deliveries people going to the shops open much much earlier and then come 10 o'clock everything stops because it's just too hot to do anything and then about seven eight o'clock in the evening everything kicks off again and you can have on, you know people um, mothers with their kids in prams walking the streets because it's just that bit cooler um if it's not and, and also that's when you, you go swimming you don't go swimming during the day even if you've got a swimming pool because it's just extraordinary and we all swim in the river orb which is the most beautiful river and there is a secret Coase beach um where which is called coze beach it's about four miles uh, away from us and to find it you have to be taken there it's like some sort of secret portal and you, f- you, you, you go down a track you go down another track then you get out of your car and you go through a wood and then you go through and down another track and you burst open onto the river orb um, in a valley with a cave up in the mountains behind you and if you don't know where it is you'll never find it and then come seven or eight at night on a hot day you go down there thinking, oh God, you know, I'll, I'll go for a swim. I'll make the effort. I go three quarters of the village is there. <laughs> they got <laughs> fires going, barbecues. they I mean, it's like a beach at midday in in Saint Tropez, which is lovely because everybody's waving to each other. The dogs are in the water. You know, people are swapping stuff. That, you know, if you haven't bought any wine or you, you haven't got a call, or somebody will notice and they'll bring something over to you. So. The days are really engineered around what the weather 's like, even if you 're working it 's the same thing, although I have to say sometimes I do gratuitously go to the supermarket, which is ferociously air conditioned and wander the aisles aimlessly, <laughs> buying stuff I have no idea what it is just to keep cool for a little while in the winter it 's very much different. The days are very short um, it 's cold people don 't quite figure you know they go in in the holidays and it 's cold. And when i mean cold, it, you know, it can be on sub-zero for days. And heating a, a, a house like that um, is almost impossible. We have a couple of big um, uh, stoves, you know, wood-burning stoves that we, we, we keep going almost continually. And you, you close in on yourself. We close floors of the house. I say floors we've, as if we've got hundreds of them. We've got three floors, but we close one of them. We don't go out on the roof terrace. That's all closed up and you kind of disappear into yourself and people you, it's funny you, you go to the bars you go to the restaurants the lizard blue becomes a different place in the winter no tourists and you go in and you know Rick will greet you and um you know the 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 menu is thick and hearty in the winter, and you get put next to this big stone stove with drifts of of grey ash underneath it that have been there for about two months, and it's sort of almost enveloping the stove. And outside uh, in the summer, as I was saying, the warmth of the wind. In winter, the winds are, the doors are clattering, and everybody keeps their coats on. So it depends on the season, but um, everyone is different, and it's not. It's not a, 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 there's not a difference between people like us who own a house there. And we don't holiday. We, we, we do a lot of work when we're there. But when pe- people, you know, the French who work there as well, their whole lives change in the same way.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: It sounds like very much a stark contrast to your life over here, um, which I wanted to get onto because we're sitting at the in the offices of Penguin, uh, right opposite the brand new I'd say brand new, it's quite new the it's US really Embassy. Frightening, it? yes. It's quite frightening, quite imposing, very modern and almost Insect-like, I would say. Yeah, there's
2: a carapace to it, isn't there?
1: Yes, yeah. And um, of the U.S. Embassy, and you were working in publishing for a long time. Um, so you also dropped into conversation just before I pressed record that not only did you work in publishing, but you also worked in music.
2: Well, not so much music. I was um, I was one of the first people who uh, started the audio divisions of publishing houses, which was. Uh, a fascinating proposition because this was the sort of late 90s, early 2000s when we were still doing tapes and CDs and Um And uh, I walked into my boss's office one day, I was the non-fiction publisher at the time of uh, what is now part of Hachette, walked into my boss's office with, a, with a, an abridged Maeve Binchy tape um, and the, the book was Scarlet Feather for anybody who remembers it and it was abridged and we, I'd got this this um, tape in um, because it, it had been licensed to a company to produce and I went into my boss and said why are we licensing this stuff you know this is really popular and we should be doing them ourselves you know a bit of investment we can do and without looking up he he, he, he said uh, oh we don't license them and he was quite an intimidated Man, I mean, he—he he was responsible for creating pretty much what half, half of publishing has become. And I was always kind of a bit worried if he started to confront me, and so I—I I, you know, started to disbelieve my own eyes. He said, "No, we don't, we don't uh, license them." And I said, "Well, this has been licensed," it's, he, and he said, "No, no, you're not listening to me. We don't license them as of now, and as of now, you're the new audio publisher." <laughs> I didn't know we licensed them, so off I went. <laughs> And um, we created the audio division, um, and that was an extraordinary fun period because it was when um, a lot of American actors and actresses were coming into the West End to, um, uh, for, for, to plays, you know, whatever they were, and they would do uh, six performances and a, and a matinee. And most of them, once they'd got into the swing of it, would pitch up at the uh, theatre at six o'clock have a cup of coffee and go straight on so they had nothing to do during the day so we slip notes under the door and say hey we'll take you to the ivy for lunch and we'll give you a thousand pounds and really look after you would if you read this book for us and to our utter surprise they'd all go yeah fine <laughs> but don't tell my new, don't tell my hollywood agent otherwise i'm in trouble so we would have to do well how are we going to credit you and all this sort of stuff but we had such fun doing that Um, And that was how I got into audio books and and what they've become now, of course, is is a huge business, and rightly so. Um, No longer abridged or full-length because all digital and so on. But prior to that, um, I got into publishing. And again, I talk about it in the book, not for any autobiographical reason, more because the book, parts of the book... um, are woven around the idea or the, are woven around memory and history and, uh, and enthusiasms and passions. And I don't want to, to make the book sound too worthy, but that's what precipitated um, my thoughts, the house itself, because a 1,000-year-old house, you know, if you've got any antennae, the, you start to think about who lived there before, what were their lives like, you know, above the the door, and uh, in the front door, there's a date scratched on the lintel, 1782. And, you know, you wonder who did that, because it is scratched in. So I started to talk about um, the sort of passions and enthusiasms and and the things that had happened to me, silence and so on, which took me back to my start in publishing, because I didn't go to university, and today, that's actually come full circle. You would get into publishing houses today because... Um, we've realised over the last few years that um, it's not your academic ability, it's your ability to be able to take your passion and turn it into something that um, publishers like Penguin and Random House and so on can curate. And that was my big thing when I started in publishing. It was um, non-fiction and I was very lucky um, because of the, the the time that it was, and the fact that I got into publishing in a really circuitous route, and found that it was something utterly serendipitous. I, I found I loved books. I found I loved the whole thing. And it, I, my first person 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 I worked for was a, a, a legendary man called um, Jock Murray, John Murray the Sixth, who was the. Uh, penultimate head of John Murray Publishers one of the venerable publishers and I worked for him and um, like him he was his father um, stopped him one day there was a boy in the 1920s and said um, uh, uh, um, John would you do would you do me the greatest of favours um, Sir Arthur is coming in today Sir Arthur Conan Doyle would you do me the greatest of favours um, I believe he's bringing in the last volume of his Sherlock Holmes stories. Would you be good and receive them from him? And Jock Murray, um, in an interview he did with uh, a Paddy Lee Firma just before he died, said, um, and I met Colin Doyle, and he, and he said, he was so kind to me as this young whippersnapper. I said to myself, if this be an author... I want to spend my life with authors. And, you know, I kind of got that immediately. And that was the thing that really generated a passion in me for publishing, for books, for people, for authors, for the process of of publishing, for being helping people write books. Um, And I go back to when I delivered my manuscript. Um, I was the person on the other side of the fence saying that chapter doesn't work, you need to do this, um, put that there. And I did that for perhaps 30, 35 years, working with some extraordinary authors. Um, and it's, a, it's a, an extraordinary thing as well to now be on the side, other side of the fence. Um, and a really strange experience. Looking at the whole process from a completely different perspective, And do you know what? I wish I had had the chops to do this 25 years ago because I'd have made a much better publisher having gone through publishing my own book and knowing how authors put so much into it. Of course I knew that instinctively, but not emotionally and viscerally as I do now. So that's the sort of circle of events that brought me here.
1: Have you, throughout your working life before, did you travel
2: a lot? With authors, yes. Um, A a lot of my uh, publishing towards the end, I used to work with quite a lot of big celebrities and help them put their books together. And as a consequence, you would end up, one of the last books I worked on with Phil Collins and worked with him quite closely and spent time in New York with him and in Switzerland with him. Um, And, you know, there's a, there's a, a strange bond that happens between somebody who is telling you about their lives because it's unlike anything that a journalist can ever do or a tv interview can never do although you know nick bloomfield is an extraordinary um, uh, biographer uh, film biographer but there is a sort of understanding when you are um doing a book and that is that you're allowed there is a there is a, 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 a contract of respect and confidentiality which is currency but also there is this you are as a consequence of that allowed to be quite impertinent and say things to them well why did you do that why did you say that what were you thinking when that happened to you and for anybody outside of a family to say that to somebody some of these big big stars i've worked with you know it was you just wouldn't get through the door their agents would look at you and go "Uh oh no but in those sort of circumstances you you had the license to do that which was really fascinating as a consequence part of my job was not just publishing but it was also to do with interviewing getting the best out of them being candid with them sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't often it did because you know, they wanted to do the best book they possibly can. So I was very lucky in in being involved with those sorts of of things. But I was also general narrative non-fiction. I don't know whether anybody out there remembers some books that were published in the early 2000s um, uh, by Dave Peltzer, books, one of which was called The Child Called It, which was really what is rather pejoratively called Misery Memoirs, which I don't hold to. They're not all misery memoirs, and they're still going today. Kathy Glass, for example, publishes those. And it was the first book that... I bought it from the the States. It was published by a small company, and it was a little book about Dave um, being physically abused when he was a, a child. And it was a small book, and it had been a huge bestseller in the States... And through one way or another, this book came to me, and I sort of walked round it for a little while because I, I didn't quite get it. And there was this assumption that um, these books wouldn't work in the UK because we're all stiff upper lip and we don't uh, we don't hold uh, have our emotions on our sleeves. And I read it, and the you know that he's going to be saved right at the beginning, and it goes on to be just him rather objectively talking about what happened to him. And it was a colossal, it sold millions of copies and it started this whole genre. And that was a fascinating thing to be involved in as well because it changed publishing a bit. Not a, you know, there are certain books that do that. And for the good, because I used to spend, when it first came out, the tidal wave of people who read that who had also been abused was heartbreaking and I and my assistant used to spend pretty much every Friday afternoon going through the letters and trying to reply to them, trying to say, tell them, you know, just, just replying to them so they didn't felt, feel their, their letters had gone into to, to the void. And some of them I remember to this day, which, which just make me almost weep. But what it did do, uh, uh, this, it was physical abuse, it wasn't sexual abuse, but a lot of the letters we were getting in, were describing this and it kind of opened and I'm not suggesting it was that book alone but it was just that moment when it broke open and started a conversation and a child called it I didn't really know perhaps why that book worked until there was, was a review in one of the newspapers and there was a question at the end of the review and the reviewer whose name Can't remember now. Or the the commentators said, "I wonder whether this book would have been so successful if the abuser had not been his mother. If the abuser had been his father." And we found that so many women were buying this book because they they couldn't understand how a mother could do that. You know, men are horrible. Men do these sorts of things, but they couldn't understand that. And that I think was one small step to something that was good and opening up people and families to recognize when this sort of thing was happening and again i don't want to overstate it, goodness, it was just that little open
1: no, but I think it absolutely books like that show the power that books and reading have to change people's lives and actually bringing it back to to your book you talked about Peter mail and a year in Provence, and that book in the 80s it was responsible for hordes of people actually moving to Provence and changing their entire lives and you know it's, it's very conceivable that maybe your book will will do the same I'll take the
2: sales definitely I think it sold in the end something like 6 million copies so I'll we'll take the sales but no you're right I mean and to this day thirty to 4 years afterwards the Louber changed. he changed it and for the good or, or bad I'm, I'm i'm not sure i think it was again a moment um but the thing about peter Mayle's book was is that it's it it, is, it has the joie de vivre you know it talk, it's about food it's about people it's about f- not fun so much as just everything was optimistic about that book and he wrote with such you know He was almost thrilled to be putting the words on the page, and I hope that I've tried to capture some of that. I hope it's funny. I hope that it's also, in parts, not so funny, because there are things that happen to us in that house which are very difficult for me to talk about. And when you read the book, you'll understand. And I'm not, I don't want to make the book into a sort of mystery, but it is. It's not something that I, I I can sort of explain or toss aside in a line. And I and as they used to say, well, why did you write, tell us about your book and uh, in in a paragraph? And often writers go, well, if I wouldn't have haven't written, had to have written the book if I could tell you about it in a paragraph. And the point is, I do address the things that happen to us, but they are all to do with, as I say, fun and and fig jam and buying a a, a bath in chelsea and you know finding a way of getting that and about the builders about the bakers about the people about finding something where you can actually feel in the bones of somewhere peace it's it's i try and explain it about everybody's looking for somewhere to belong and it doesn't matter what it is you know a place you know, a relationship somewhere where you belong and we're, we're we're so lucky if we manage to find that even for a, a moment um, no matter what that is and One Place de l'Eglise became and has become somewhere where we, we, we belong where we feel like we're part of a great stream of a thousand years of, of, of history and we're just a moment at at the end of it and I've said to people before that all those people who went before us are now sort of ghosts and they're echoes of in that place but you kind of you know I, I, i i sometimes fancy and there are no ghosts there although it's built on a visigoth graveyard so which some people go oh my god Visigoth. so i believe that you know the good people remain and you know out of the corner of your eye you'll see something move and you go oh i wonder what that was but I've never felt anything but warmth from the place, and I think that's because we gave back some of that warmth to it as well. And when we leave, who are the people who lived there for a thousand years? Who knows? We're going to when we when we leave the house for the last time, we're going to leave two bottles of Pickpool because Pickpool is the local hooch, which I talk about as well. Lots about booze um, and finding the mythical Pickpool Red there. That's a that's a story in itself. Um, so I'll leave two bottles of Pickpool and I'll leave a copy of one Place de l'Eglise so that in a thousand years, our moment will be something people can go, ah, that's a punctuation point that I can find out about and know about.
1: Beautiful. I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music, because I very much believe that music and travel go hand in hand. If I had to ask you to choose one song, if you had to choose one song that reminds you, you swine. of a moment, how, how can how can you do this? I know it stumps a lot of people. I'll in let you France. think of it. One song that reminds you of a moment, time and place of travel, wherever you might have been. You could be in France. You could be.
2: Do you know what it is? Um, Trené, It's just a song that makes your heart sing. Um... Trené was born just down the road from Cassivaron and his little house is now, um, a museum. And when we come go down to France... Um, Jacques Braille as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when we go down to France, when we go, go to the village, we, um... We play Juchon. That's the song.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast.
2: It has been absolute delight. Let's do it again
1: absolutely for the next book do it now again are you, re- are you let's do it again. Are you writing another book
2: well you're going to persuade the publishers to take a second book a copy as you and come out you of here I you can
1: persuade the publishers to publish my novel which I think would it's sell a, really it's well it's a deal I've written it <laughs> I just need to get it published done you heard it here first thank you so much for listening to the big travel podcast and thank you to Trevor of course for providing us with that lovely slice of life in France we'll be back every couple of weeks with a brand new episode please give us a review and like and and subscribe on whatever app you're listening to us on.